Welcome to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast. I'm your host, Troy Hammond, and on today's episode, we're chatting with Carlos Chambers. Carlos is the CEO and co-founder of Carbon Invoice and Common Ledger. Carbon Invoice is a new carbon offsetting platform that is actually changing the game for recruitment companies and for services companies, professional services companies. And so I really encourage you to go out if you're in that field and check out what they're doing. We chat about how Carlos has got into the startup world, how him and his friends spent three months in a room with a whiteboard trying to figure out what startup they wanted to do, had no idea, true American style, how to fucking found a startup. And so really, really interesting. We also talk about his journey at Burning Man too, which was super fascinating and and probably convinced me to go to Burning Man next year. And so hopefully we can shoot an episode at Burning Man in the desert. Are you going to come, Jono? Until then. Thanks for tuning in to the We Fucking Love Startups podcast, brought to you by Talent Island. Never done a podcast. I mean, I've probably listened to 2,000 of them. Yeah. So What's your favorite? I'm a big fan. Um, I, I love Sam Harris. Yeah, I love, I love Sam, Sam Harris. Harris' podcast, Waking yeah. Up. I, I mean, I, I think Tim Ferriss still probably has some of the best speakers yeah. and content. I'm still, you know, remarkably, yeah. uh, you know, impressed with the, yeah, the caliber of people he's, he gets. Yeah, been just getting into Brené Brown's one recently. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I yeah. think Friedman as well for me, Harris, Ferris, you know, like they're my yeah. faves, my go-tos. Did you listen? Have you listened to that one with Friedman and Sam Altman yet? No. That's really okay. good. Friedman interviewing Sam Altman. Yeah. 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 Really interesting, man. Like – um just hearing about the journey of ChatGPT and yeah. what they had to do, where, like how they fed it the information, where it came from, what they discovered along mm. the way, what they were scared about, what he's still scared about now, what he's not scared about. So, mm. yeah. Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's my – um. like mm. every evening now I just, I, I just don't watch TV anymore ever. And mm. so I just listen to podcasts or I watch podcasts on the TV and, you know, that's my happy place now. Yeah, feed your brain. Yeah, man, fuck yeah. Like <laughs> we we live in this weird world now where everyone's feeding their brain shit 30-second TikTok reels, right? And then, then they have an opinion based off the 30 seconds of information that they've learned and yeah. it's scary and dangerous, man. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I, I almost wrote a LinkedIn post today. I actually wrote it. It was like it was that long that they LinkedIn said, sorry, this is too long to put in a LinkedIn post. And it was me trying to – be bold enough to write something about what's happening right now in the world with the ideology groups and like using a trans thing that's happened recently and trying to tell people that we've we've lost the ability to just the, the trans thing having been the English female yeah, yeah, speaker yeah, who yeah. came yeah. yeah yeah I can't recall her name yeah. but yeah yeah Posey Posey Park or yeah. something uh, to be honest I don't even know anything about her like I didn't even waste my time looking in, into it because mm. I was like oh, you know I've got too much. I, other things to worry about, right? Yeah. Um, but um, I, yeah, I was, I wrote this post about, you know, how we just need to be curious more about each other and mm. not be so horrible to each other and not like just, we'd, we'd have no empathy in the world and no patience for other people and learning their position anymore. Mm. And I wrote this long, long piece and I realized at the end of it, I can't even post it without worrying about what's going to happen. But you have to. Oh, this is the you thing. Have to, yeah, right. So, Eventually, we have to. Yeah. Because in that example, the you know 
people assaulted that woman, that feminist, yeah. and the police did nothing to stop them. In any other situation, if people had assaulted someone, the police would have arrested people. Yeah. So you get this, the, the outcome of that is she then knows and understands that New Zealand is not a place where you can express ideas and share ideas. And the, the, the other negative side is then she goes to the other ideology groups like the Destiny's Church, yep. and they do give her a place to express her ideas, but they sort of, you know, wrap them up in their own ideas and probably misinterpret and miscommunicate them. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not saying you have to necessarily, but we, d- we have to put a line in the sand at some point. Because otherwise, yeah, the the, end, the slippery slope is yeah. very dirty at the bottom. So this is exactly where I was going with this, right? So I wrote the post, I didn't post it, I was too scared, and then I sat here for two hours this morning thinking... Why am I too scared to post this? I'm too scared because people are going to misinterpret, misinterpret, misquote what I've said in this mm-hmm. post and that's what's happening in the world. And then I started thinking about we don't have enough bold leaders in the mm-hmm. world anymore that are standing up for what is fact anymore. People are st- like standing up for what is easier to get votes or what is going to make them get more likes on social media or what's going to do this. And so I started thinking, well, maybe I need to be a little bit more courageous with vocalising my opinion. And, man, there's nuances to, like, this trans, you know, um, rally that happened. I'm a massive advocate that transgender people should be feel safe and supported and likes, but Absolutely. I'm also a massive advocate for free speech and that people shouldn't be allowed to have their opinions. And so what I think is happening with this now is that people like me who used to be very comfortable expressing my brain experiments, you know, mm. online don't anymore, right? Like mm. we don't and and we're too scared now to have open and honest dialogue with each other because we're worried about fucking people attacking us. And so, mm. yeah. It's yeah, I think that there's an issue. The forum, the online forum is problematic as well, right? Like that the version of public discourse in that town square has become very degraded and oversimplified and opinion-based and reactionary. But I think the... So having a conversation with someone, you know, with your kids, with mm. with your friends, and with me right here in person, like, I think, I think that is a really great forum to talk openly. And at the end of the day, everyone's entitled to an opinion. I don't have to agree with you. Um, you're, re- you're reading my blog post right now, man. Like, right, right. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. and it, the hope is that the you know the best opinions win through logic and yeah. you know combing them and refining them and figuring out what's wrong with them, and that's how we drag ourselves forward as a as a society. But yeah, well, I agree. the The current kind of the current discourse and the way that we have that discussion is deeply flawed. You know, because people are not, we're not learning anything through that. People are just reacting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's um, there was a, like I'm watching Ted Lasso at the moment. I'm not sure if you've seen it, right? Like occasionally, it's like no. one show. I watched that, and then I watched this other show on um, shrinking on Apple TV about psychology and the likes. Okay. Um, Be curious, not judgmental, was something that he quotes in that show, and that was the thing that really got me. Like that, that's that was the start of my LinkedIn post. Like, be curious, not judgmental, and that what that means to me is that. I want to sit down and understand someone and I want to understand why they got to that, to form that opinion. Like how did they get there? Why did you get there? And then I want to give them that my time and energy to be free and confident to express that opinion to me. And then I want to have time. I want to take some time before I respond to them mm. to understand that opinion, 
do I does my opinion does my opinion still valid after learning what I've learned? Do, do I feel as strongly about it now with this person? And and if so, base my reply based off that, you know, versus attacking someone because it's so easy now just to say, well, this my opinion's fact, so you can fucking get on the bus or get the fuck off it. And if you're not on the bus, I'm going to tell you how horrible of a human being you are. And that's the world that we live in, unfortunately. But there was a very inspiring Irish primary school teacher who appeared on Kim Hill Radio New Zealand maybe 12 months ago and he was teaching these incredibly poor lower socioeconomic Irish kids philosophy at you know age six age seven and one of the main things that he was teaching them was exactly what you're saying when when instead of having a reaction to something the role is the methodology is think Mm. and then think and then respond. Mm. And that's just what you said, right? You want to think about what the other person has said to you. You want to think about your position in light of that and is it still valid? And then you want to respond. And that's a base, you know, that's a very basic philosophy tool. But if we just used a bit more of that, you feel like there'd be, yeah, a lot of richness and ability yeah. to move forward in human conversation. And safety, psychological safety around. Um, learning again because Mm. I think that we're losing the ability to be curious and learn about topics because if you don't follow a certain narrative now you are by default you know Mm. wrong you know online Mm. yeah interesting man um, it's it's podcasting for me you know we're going back to the podcast is long form conversation is where I really get enjoyment because I see I see people's true opinions based off nuance of knowledge that they've learned or based off their their research over many, many years. And I'm able to like listen to that and go, yeah, I definitely feel strongly about that and I definitely agree with that. Oh, I don't know if I agree with that, but I might look into that a little bit more and might read that. And I find that after every podcast I listen to now, I'm like, man, that made me think. You know, man, mm. that made me think. Yeah. So, and, you know, we're sitting here staring into the windows of each other's souls. Yeah. So there's that connection and at some level accountability and humanness to the exchange, right, mm. rather than staring into a, yeah, 18-inch yeah. screen. So you don't do uh, TikTok dances at home in my <laughs> <laughs> I do dances at home, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just not, not on TikTok. <laughs> good to know, good to know. All right, awesome. Hey, so um, you are one of the few people that I know that um, – Started a found, like start. You actually founded or came into common ledger there in the same time that I got into my startup journey, right? And mm. so you, I remember you years and years ago with your long curly hair riding a bike to come and talk to us at Passive. Um, yeah, when, in the yeah. old police building. Yeah, right? yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, who the fuck's this guy? You know, like, and they're like, um, he's the CEO of Common Ledger, and I was like, man, this is for me. That was when I started realizing that. So many people can go into startups. Like you came out of a, being a lawyer, decided you didn't want to be a lawyer and decided you wanted to get into startups. And I was like, man, he's fucking super bright, like super understands what he's doing and the passion. And that was like this similar journey to me that I was on. And so mm. I felt like we sort of, our journeys have started at the same time, gone in different directions. Obviously, I'm mm. obviously doing that recruiting thing. But um, what, what was it about you that you just knew your path wasn't law? I think there were push factors and pull factors. So I was yeah, trained as a lawyer and started my career at Russell McVeigh, which is one of the, the bigger or the biggest commercial firm in, in New Zealand. And the 
I loved the work that we did at Russ McVeigh. I was fortunate to be in a team called the Public Regulatory and Competition Team. And really that was, it was commercial law, but it was doing things like our, our clients were large regulated businesses like the supermarkets or the, mm. the airports or Fonterra, you know, people with the electricity gen tailors, people who were running businesses where they had a natural monopoly um, and therefore in a small market like New Zealand they had the ability to abuse consumers with, you know, by charging them too yep. much money or other oppressive behaviour. Um, so our job was to advise those clients on the specific regulations and laws and rules that applied to them um, and it, even to the point of influencing the regulatory and legal process. So, you know, pro- probably in some ways what that team does is, is lobbying. Um, that's not a commonly used word in New Zealand, but there's a little it's bit of lobbying. bad connotations. Yeah, word, exactly. Yeah. A little bit of lobbying, a little bit of a lot of um, a lot of technical legal work around regulations. Um, and then the competition team at Russell Bay are, are especially brilliant at, you know, advising those companies on their their risks and how you know competition law applies to them. So the work was fascinating, right? You get you're getting paid um, to think about these very interesting issues, you know, issues of technical law, but also issues of fairness. You know, mm-hmm. what what what's the rights of the consumer versus the rights of the corporate. So I loved the work that we did there, but on the on the push side, I really just couldn't. I looked around the firm and thought, if I'm here ten years from now, what am I going to be like, and who are the heroes in this firm that I want to aspire to be like? And I just couldn't find any, or very there was very few people that I thought, you know, this this looks like a good life for me. Yeah. Um, and then I also struggled. You know, I was probably an idealistic 24-year-old, and I, I struggled with the, the client base and I wanted to go and, you know, work on a, a, the, the important ethical issues that I saw as important. And, and the main one of those was climate change. Mm-hmm. I figured that was the biggest problem facing humanity. Um, Russell Matt tried to help me work on that, you know, a bit of forestry work, a bit of emissions trading scheme work, but really it was um, it was not enough. Um and and then on the pull factors, I, I I always wanted to start a business. You know, mm-hmm. both of my parents are small business owners in their own way. My mum has a, a small communications agency. My dad's a farmer and an orchardist and, you know, has done a few different businesses in relation to the land. So I guess I always saw that as a as as the ultimate destiny and for me um, and wanted to go and chase that that dream. Mm-hmm. And so you did the you did the really hard way in right into startups because you went to CEO in a startup that was already formed that was struggling to find product market fit at the time and that's your first vehicle or your first opportunity in right what the fuck yeah I think that's I think that's right <laughs> um, uh, so there was there was a few I'll just fill in the I'll colour it in a little bit so I left Russell McVeigh I went to I said what's the best way to start my own startup. I grabbed a friend of mine or sort of a co-conspirator called Scotty Millat who resigned from his advertising agency job and we moved to the, a barn on the farm where I'd grown up. In the Hawke's Bay. In the Hawke's Bay and outside Havelock North. And we spent basically four, four months brainstorming startup ideas. We had whiteboards, 
um, you know, vivid markers, uh, this beautiful setting, you know, a, a broadband connection, and not, not a lot else. By the end of four months, we had we had so many ideas. We were completely sick of looking at each other. <laughs> you know, what was the one? What, what's the one that you think back now on the whiteboard that you're like, I should have done that. So the mental model was. He, we both wanted to start a business, and I wanted to start a business that reduced carbon emissions. Yeah. So we did a. We had a lot of ideation and concepts around transport. Mm -hmm. Like I think that was 2012. I mean Uber. I think we were we were you know toying around with the idea of ride hailing and probably more carpooling. Yeah. There were some successful models in Europe. Um, blah blah car that had figured out carpooling and in, in those markets. So, yeah, I think I think there was probably a big transport opportunity, peer-to-peer -peer transport opportunity that, that we missed. But we, we, you know, we were two guys. One was an ex-lawyer, one was a, a, an ad agency suit. And we didn't have, we, we couldn't build any software. Yeah. We didn't know people with capital. We, we were using the internet to just pipe information into our brain and download it. But, you know, we completely, when we totally isolated ourselves, the right thing to do, I think, is the opposite of yeah. that. You, you go and immerse yourself in the existing communities. Yeah. But we were both quite stubborn and um, and dogged about it and, and I guess thinking, you know, we can do this. It sounds like an American podcast that I'm listening to right now. Me and my friend went into a room for three months, you know, we with the whiteboard, you know, we came out with Airbnb. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and like I, I think let's face it all, certainly my view is the idea is – one percent or less yeah. of of what makes up the success right it's the it often looks like it's the idea because at the end of it the ceo or the team or whatever the founders can articulate it so lucidly in a sentence or two mm. but there's been ten thousand ideas within that one idea there's been there's been a hundred thousand decisions that people in the team have made yeah. which contribute to that idea so yeah, I think we we thought the idea was ninety percent. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it turns out the idea is less than one percent, and yeah. the execution is everything else. So, what did you do after that? Then, after you got like you, you, you had it, are you still friends now? Yeah, yeah, we, we're good. very good friends. Yeah, yeah, we, we had we had a you know two month cool down period yeah. as you do when you have a breakup. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then we got back together as friends. Um, we so I then decided to commit eighteen months of my life to building New Zealand a, a youth climate advocacy group called Generation Zero. Um, so we were trying to basically give young people, eighteen to thirty year olds, a voice on climate issues in New Zealand because we saw that the international change and appetite to to solve this problem and ability to solve it was just not going to get us there it wasn't going to be a problem solved in the UN or you know um in those international forums so we thought you know every person in every country has to do their bit and let's let's create a voice for young new zealanders on on climate mm. um and through that influence our politicians we have we did some really um, quite deep research. We had very smart people on board, uh, very committed, passionate people. You know, all volunteering, working mm. for nothing or working for a five thousand dollars stipend a year. Um, so we yeah we basically we created primary research ourselves to describe and and work out how New Zealand could get to a net zero economy by twenty fifty, and then we we took that research to 
policymakers, other advocacy groups. Um, we did cool, cool shit. Like uh, we did a speaking tour where we spoke to about 15 cities around New Zealand. We dragged a, a 12 meter high Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur around with us to to communicate the the national government at that time's thinking on climate. You know, was, this was is that like, on the news? This is archaic. Yeah, yeah, we were on three news. Yeah, I remember that now. All, yeah, all yeah, sorts. yeah. So that was that was probably my first, in a way, startup experience. You know, it wasn't Gen Zero was a is, is a an advocacy group, not a not a for profit enterprise. But bringing people together, yeah, bringing people together. You're learning to do stuff with almost no resources, yeah. and motivating and inspiring people, and um, figuring out how to get stories into the media and find those hooks yeah. that, and then getting in front of politicians and you know giving them the the strong hard word and try to help them form a mandate for taking action. And so then... So I did 18 months of that. That was volunteering and then ran out of money, basically. Um, I had a little bit of sponsorship from some family friends, but, yeah, ran out of money. Was also conscious... I felt like I had maybe... I was overconfident about how much impact I could have and I needed to go and learn some more skills. You know, I think the three things I focused on at that time was... I said I'll do five, you know, I still want to work on climate, but I'll do five or maybe seven years to build some capability, some, you know, some more skills, some capital, get some money because sucks running out of money and, you know, you need money to influence the world and then some connections. So, you know, more people who can help you do stuff. Mm. And that was kind of my trade-off to go and work on a pure technology startup, even though I really wanted to work on climate still. But I saw that as a way to build, yeah, capital, capability, and connections. Um, nearly took a job at Deloitte as a management consultant. Um, I got a phone call from my friend Anthony Cabral the night before, and he goes, oh, "I've just been talking to the Lightning Lab Digital Business Accelerator here in Wellington. Um, they're looking for people to help run the program. You'd be perfect." And I was, I was kind of pushing into those startup networks and the ecosystem, so. Um, I thought, you know, this this looks good. It doesn't pay much money, but it'll teach me a lot. Mm. Did that, and then one of the businesses coming through the Lightning Lab was Common Ledger, was which it? was Drew and Vince, yeah. and that's who I met, connected with, and then joined them as a as a co founder. Awesome, and then ultimately this yeah CEO. Mm. And so, so they're pretty early then. Yeah, they were they were early, so they'd established the company. Um, Drew had. I think fair to say Drew had um, come up with the concept for Common Ledger. It was um, it was a fuck you zero pretty much in the early days. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think there was a few fuck you zeros thrown around at, at the office. Yeah. Um, I think that was maybe his motivation. Yeah, um, yeah, that was what he was motivated by. I think he maybe had a falling out with Rod or had a pitch competition which hadn't that had an exchange which had yeah. rubbed Drew up the wrong way. But the, the original concept was to provide a way for small business accounting data, so for small businesses to share their accounting data kind of regardless of the software package that mm. the small business or the accountant was using. Yeah. So it was kind of a, the world, you know, small businesses should be free to use whatever accounting software they want to and their data, you know, the beating heart of that small business, their accounting information, which tells you everything about that business should be able to be used by them wherever they want 
you know, mm-hmm. and that and that information is incredibly valuable. You know, it's primarily used in in the tax and accounting use case, but we saw and and I still do see huge potential for that information to be used in the credit assessment process, right? Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate whether a small business is is, is credit worthy is gonna be a good candidate to make a loan to? Um, it's totally manual at the moment. Uh, and the insurance underwriting process, you know, how do you figure out as an insurer whether a small business, how risky a small business is? How do you, you, you got to get information from that small business, their asset register, their, yeah. you know, how much revenue they're doing. You can get all of that out of the accounting file. And that was what Common Ledger, um, that's the mission of Common Ledger. Yeah. And so Common Ledger, you, um, so you were running Common Ledger. You you were running Common Ledger up until recently, right? And so still co- running it. Still, yeah, still a thing. Couple, yeah, just a couple of jobs. Yeah, yeah. At the moment. And so Elon, g'day. <laughs> <laughs> and so talked so, to me in ten years. Yeah, sure. Common Ledger, man. I was I was we were we were rooting for Common Ledger for a long time, man. Like it felt like there was a really cool team. You know, mm. we we did a work, like, some work helping you guys at the start. You know, and. There was a lot of times where we felt like, oh, fuck, it's about to really kick off here and then it would like plateau for a little bit and then it would come back again. And and so why do you think that was, like looking back now and retrospectively? It was great working with you guys. The thing I loved most was the aligned incentives kind of business model for startups. That was the really unique thing about Talent Army from my perspective. Most recruiters were like, we'll charge you 20% or 17% and you guys were like, Let's find out the right arrangement that works for you, and if that's four percent for the first hire, and yeah. you know, and then we find a way to scale up. I felt like you were really investing in and taking a bet on some of these relationships, including Common Ledger. Um, that was 2014, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah. I'm going to put a little disclaimer down there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was before we had that podcast that we had to fund. <laughs> yeah. So. Common Ledger, so really three three pivots. Yeah. The fir- the first business and um you know, thesis was uh that you know, we could build an efficiency and a data tool for accountants. Mm. And that was if an accountant was using whatever system the accountant was using, MYB zero, Intuit, um, they would always have clients who were on a different software system and that created a whole lot of manual work for the accountant to wrangle that data, get it into their environment and then be able to prepare financials. Mm-hmm. And when you're an accountant, if you're doing that 60 minutes, 90 minutes per job, it adds up because you're largely a time-based um, yep. billing model. So that was the first model. We we went, I think, I think that, you know, we we failed there because it was the accountants who adopted the product loved it but they cost us a lot of money to acquire you know Mm. 2014-15 I personally called probably 6,000 accountants in New Zealand Australia direct sales um ironically six or seven years eight years on from that we still get sign-ups from that campaign oh wow so the accountants have like saved the email somewhere in their inbox and five years later they get around to it <laughs> so i think that shows you know the the speed of change not for all accountants but for for many and then we we saw we our say one of our saving graces was we signed a big deal with a group called Findex, mm-hmm. who were a really big. They just bought a large accounting group called Crow Horowith, and they were they were making a bet on 
consistency process, automation, data, at pretty big scale. You know, they bought Crowhorth, they delisted it from the um, from the ASX. That firm, you know, probably had 110 offices, about 80,000 clients across New Zealand, Australia, many of those small, medium businesses. Mm-hmm. So they took a real, yeah, they, they saw the vision of Common Ledger and thought this is a great fit for us. We're going to bet on Carlos and the team. Yeah. And we did a, a really big customer relationship with a few strategic aspects as well. Um, that So that gave us an enterprise relationship and we worked our asses off to roll the product out to the enterprise. It was, it was a lot different, right? Like servicing a 50-person yeah, accounting sure, yeah. firm versus a 5,000-person you know, enterprise. And these guys are hardcore kind of deal guys more that more than they are accountants, sort of mm. deal financial deal guys and technologists. So I have, I have great respect for for that business and the people behind it. It's largely a family-owned business, the, the Pulse. Um, and then, so that gave, the second pivot was we thought, well, we've always had the thesis that this data and we can help small businesses use this data in the, in the lending process. So we went and basically started testing that with a few of the banks and because we had Findex as a customer now we could turn up and say mm-hmm. we're you know we're on our journey to being enterprise ready enterprises yeah. are trusting us and really the yeah the idea there was at the moment if you're a small business you rock up to the bank you fill out a 10 page pdf form to borrow money and then you wait for 6 weeks and then you you know you get a decision. If it's a yes, you wait for another four or five weeks to get the money. That's changed. You know, there's been some incremental improvements to that around the edges. But that small business loan process in Australasia, the UK, North America is completely broken, and it, it completely starves okay. the heroes of the business world, small businesses, mm. of of capital. I would say banking for small business across the board is broken. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I've come to believe I've so so I've come to believe that banks do not actually care very much about the small business customer relationship. Yeah, they they in lending money to those businesses, they care about getting the mortgage loan from yeah. the business owner. Yeah. yeah, and that, but otherwise they basically just ask for they ask for security over the house. Or they ask for a personal guarantee from yeah. the directors, and it completely stifles the viability of starting and running a small or a startup business in, in New Zealand or Australia. And that is why we've got fifty one percent of New Zealand of every dollar that Kiwis own is, is in houses. Yeah. You know, and I don't have necessarily an ethical problem with people investing in houses, but what it does, it's always a trade off. It means those dollars are not going into talent army or they're not going into common yeah. ledger or they're not yeah. going into carbon invoice and i got a problem with that because our businesses are starved of capital yeah um so yeah we we had a really good go at um selling to the banks and and we're we're successful to you know to quite a degree you got um, westpac yeah yeah so we've done a lot of a lot of work with westpac new zealand um on both in both sides of the tasman had some got some successful rollouts with the australian banks um i mean slow sales processes a year 15 months always starts with a pilot yeah. uh, you get paid well for the pilot like it's it's a, it's not a bad way to float your comp- float your business and keep it alive and learn stuff but very hard to get to that really scaled rollout mm. where the banks are using your technology at massive scale and that's where the real the real dollars are 
Um, and then the third pivot, which I will probably have a chat about, is uh, or maybe it's in a you know a new business, but that's carbon invoice yeah. and the, you know the measurement of carbon emissions using accounting data and helping small businesses communicate the positive impact they've had. So those have been the three stages of um, my journey in the last decade and, and Common Ledger. I think the reason Common Ledger has you know oh lift off, not quite oh lift off. I think it is a timing thing, mm-hmm. and I know that that's trite in startups, but I still I think there's probably a two trillion dollar opportunity to build a scaled small business data company that you know helps small businesses access capital at massive scale, automates the insurance application process. I don't know why that has not been built yet, but I'm convinced it will be built. Mm. Um, and other people believe that as well, right? Like Zero has invested hundreds of millions, probably a billion dollars, I, I don't know exactly, into that same thesis. Yeah. How do we help our customers use their data for you know procuring loans or getting financial products in the Zero app yeah. experience? So I think there's a lot of capital that has tried to figure that out but that you know that sort of small business data um, problem, but no one has succeeded yet. Yeah, so I, I think it's a ti- I think it's a timing thing that business I, will I love get that, built. I love that I can see your brain thinking that you know like that we, we will be there one day. There's something will pop out of my head that we'll all go yeah, and we'll that'll be the third or fourth thing that Common Ledger did right. But yeah, yeah, and I and I think the re- the recipe is my my. For the record, I'll, I'll yeah, make a make a prediction. I think the recipe is you've got to own and control the entire small business customer experience. Mm. So if it's in their if it starts in their accounting system, you need to control the accounting system. You need to control the loan application flow. You need to control the getting the capital to that small business. Mm. I think that the problem with a lot of the current methods is everyone tries to couple different things together. You know, or Zero's yeah, yeah. just divested the Waddle business, which was invoice financing, which they acquired. Again, it was a it was a biofricated customer experience. You were in the Waddle world and yeah. then you went into the Zero world. And then I think you gotta own you gotta have the capital to do it, to actually make those loans. And yeah. I think that it, or you've got to know people who trust you to give you the capital, whether mm. that's Goldman Sachs or someone who can get capital at good enough interest rates to go and make these loans. Um, and then thirdly, I think you have to be data-led from the ground up. Mm. You know, every decision has to be um, has to be data-led because if you can do that, you've got an insane advantage against the banks who are, are not using data in the small business lending process. Mm. So I tend to think it, you know, it might be someone like an Amazon or even a Google. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's, that business is going to get built, the sort of world, global small business, data lending business. Yeah, I um, I feel like that's exploding that space at the moment. You know, lots of people I know uh, have come to me with ideas and they're potentially mm. looking to raise money and hire people based off some sort of analytics around some sort of SMB vertical. Um mm. But yeah, that man, like for me, business banking, you know, small to medium business banking across, you know, terrible experiences. Oh, and yeah. We, we've just tried to, we try, we're trying to do it without the banks this time around with Carbon Invoice and, and looking at air wallets and wires and stuff, but you can't get there in, yeah. in New Zealand if you want to send direct debits and have a card 
which is the, two of the main things you need to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a few neo banks that were sort of popping up here, and I'm like, fuck, I hope they push forward faster now with everything that's happening with the banking industry because it's definitely going to, um, I think when that pendulum tilts, it's going to be a fucking wild west of technology being built. It'll be like AI now when the banking takes off. Totally, and I think the banks are done for 10 years. Yeah. Ten, I give it 10 years. Yeah, shit, yeah. 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 I think they will be a tenth of the size that they are now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They should be using some of that profit right now to help build, right, and so throw it into places like Carbon Invoice and Common Ledger, <laughs> you know, and tell an army. Yeah, and yeah. So, so Carbon, Carbon Invoice, so, then, right? what, Can I make one other point, yeah. Troy? I think that, you know, the amazing thing about Common Ledger is the culture and the, the team that we've built. Yeah. You know, like those those people, the way they operate, the way they behave, I think immaculate in terms of the right ingredients for how you build a successful startup. Yeah. So it's always been, you know, the, the, we've always got enough ev- validation, enough of the next deal or the next success to, to, go, to go, let's carry on for another year. But really at the end of the day, it's like going to work with those people who I love working with so much and who teach me so much, and that's why, the why is it? Thing. Why do you think they've stayed the course? Because that's because that, that's not usual, you know. Like, yeah, not at all, right? If uh, you if you get us like if I I can tell you when a startup is even made a bad decision in their company that day because I see three or four of them call me up and say, oh, I don't know about this place now. I'm looking, I'm looking, hmm. but you held a team together for like a long time, man. That just kept re-upping, right? Yeah, I, I think we definitely we lost a lot. We lost people in those early years, three or four years. You know, two thousand fourteen yeah. to two thousand eighteen, we did have attrition. It was probably a more stressful environment. You know, I was a lot less mature as a leader. Probably mm. brought some bad habits from the corporate law firm around just high expectations and work, everyone needs to work really hard, like yeah, follow my lead, here we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, hustle, hustle. I mean, that you know, there's a good side to that and there's a dark side to that. Um, but, yeah, so I think from about 2018, 19 on, really we, we haven't lost anyone and the team's been super stable. I'd say it's a combination of we, you know, people believe in the, in the vision and, mm. and they think what we're doing is worthwhile People believe in me, I think, as part of it as a, as a leader and, and Mike Gannon, our, our product leader, product and tech leader. Um, I think, you know, we were fortunate to be able to keep the team small enough that we, you know, we were biggest maybe 30, 14 people or so, 15 people, and that is still small enough to feel like you're a little kind of troop, a little band yeah. on a mission together and you know everyone really well. Yeah. Um, and then I think we were pretty careful about who we hired and just really tried to find people who were um, a good complement to the current culture or a good match with the current culture Um, and then just you know be ethical behave like a proper human being and you know treat people really well fairly yeah I think it's some combination of those things awesome man awesome you um, before we get into carbon invoice, you and I had a chat a couple of uh, weeks ago, and I'm going to just drop this on you um, without pre-preparing it that you had no idea that we were going to talk about. But um, you're talking about Burning Man that you went to Burning Man, um, and you said you had a remarkable experience. And like, 
like I, to- I told you about some experiences I've had and recently, and I think as an evolution of leadership and as an evolution of self-reflection mm-hmm. and self-learning, you know, some of these things that you can push yourself out of your comfort zones or experiences and new experiences teach us so much. How much... How much do you think, like, in terms of you, you, the colour that's sitting in front of me now, like, how much is it that you've found from outside of work to turn you into the leader that you are now? I think a huge amount, yeah. So I, yeah, I love big experiences. I love doing things that... What is a big experience to you? Put you out of your comfort zone. I mean, so, and I try to do... So a big experience would be going to Burning Man. You know, that was something that... I'd wanted to do for 15 years. My dad went in 2005. (laughs) He went early on and came back and just raved about it. He had all these incredible photos and stories. And I was very fixated on it since from that point. But it took me quite a while to get there. And then last year when I went, you know, I've been a father, been a dad to Cohen for a year and a half. And that's consuming, you know, not not mm. as consuming in some ways as as the mum's role, as Tony's role, but it was, it's consuming and I've, I really wanted to go and rediscover who I was yeah. and, and figure that out, you know, in addition to being Cohen's father. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I you know, headed off um, with, a, with a few people that I, one very old friend of mine and then a few people that I, I didn't know so well and... I mean, yeah, it was was remarkable. Burning Man is, it's in some ways, it's ineffable, um, you know, indescribable. But I think that's a cop out. Let's try and describe it. So, it's this incredible. For for people that don't know, it's a desert, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it started um, by a guy called Larry in the in the late eighties. The the essence of it was burning the man, like, let's yeah. fuck the man, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck capitalism, yeah, yeah. fuck corporatism, fuck your boss, yeah. fuck the man. Um, and so they would go to remote places and spend time in this different environment that they designed with cultural principles and, and rituals. And the apex of the experience was always burning an effigy which was a few different things early on, but eventually always came to be a, a man made out of wood. Yeah. Um, some of them are really, really big now. Yeah. like And intricate. Yeah. And intricate. Yeah. They're, they're like these gorgeous sculptures, maybe 80 metres high, 90 metres high. Um, and then that, yeah, for, for most of its life, 30 years or so, it's been in Black Rock Desert, which mm. is in, in Nevada. So it is the second highest alpine desert in the world. Um, so it sits at about, I think it's about 1,800, 1,600 or 1,800 metres above sea level. And it's basically a, a riverbed where a river once long ago flowed through, has created this incredibly flat kind of chalky dirt surface, desert surface, mm. with the Sierras and, and other mountain ranges kind of surrounding it. So... It's 45 degrees in the daytime, can get as high as 50, and then overnight it can drop down to, you know, just above above negative Celsius. Um, and 80,000 people go to Burning Man um, and they, they construct this temporary city and it takes them a couple of weeks to set it up. The actual uh, celebration of the city lasts for about eight days. And it is everything from incredible 
modern artwork. You know, it's probably it's probably the the bleeding edge of modern artwork mm. around the world. M- amazing, huge sculptures, art pieces. All of the art is interactive, so it's all geared towards helping people experience it and interact with each other. Um, there's bars serving any drink you can imagine. There's, you know, I sat down with a guy and ate some yellowfin tuna and lobster that he'd caught off the California wow. coast. And all, all of it is, um, all of it, it's a gift economy. So it's not a barter economy. You don't trade things there, but people bring contributions. In fact, that's the only that's the only input into the city. It's things that people bring to share with other people, Um, and it it's a magical place. It is like this magical place that exists on Earth for eight days out of every year, Mm. where eighty thousand people completely rewire their brains, completely kind of you know, send and receive just infinite love between each other. It's a completely safe environment. You know, there's there's 80,000 people there, huge drug usage, a bit of drinking and stuff, but I didn't see a single piece of conflict the entire time I was there. Everyone awesome. is happy getting along with each other. There's kids there. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It's, did you find Carlos the person, not the father there? What did you find? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I think I think I did. My so my my two intentions going in were to get to know myself again after being a father and then to face up to my own mortality and I had been I'd been having, you know, a lot of um sort of mental flashbacks or, or moments where I was imagining myself dying. I, I think it was part, partly to do with being a dad. You yeah. know, you, you get mortal and you, you're like looking after this really vulnerable little human. Mm-hmm. So I'd have these experiences where I'd be on the bike and I'd be like, imagine if I just flicked the bike and crashed into this oncoming car, it would be all be over. Yeah. Or imagine if I like threw Cohen off the balcony. That, that's a psychological thing yeah. called staring into the abyss. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of confront that or, you know, come come to terms with that and, yeah. and understand my own mortality. And I think, yeah, I think I, I, think I did that. I, I mean, I think in some ways there, were, there was this one night where, you know, there was a, you get these crazy dust storms that come through the desert and for up to like 12 or 15 hours sometimes, you can see about metre you away. And it's it's a big place. Mm. Like it's probably 20 kilometres by 20 kilometres. Like you, everyone moves around on bikes and stuff. So these dust storms come through and you get stuck way out the back of nowhere, the back of this desert, um, and you get completely disoriented um, you know, you're you're very hyped up. You're you're kind of fatigued because you haven't slept for you know yeah, for yeah. days or whatever properly. Um, and you're in this environment where the energy is just is really special and intense. So I had one very challenging night um, in a dust storm, completely disoriented. You know, quite paranoid and um, just wandering around, completely lost. You know, lost most of my stuff. Ended up sleeping in a trailer for for a few hours just to like try to let the dust storm pass over, and then found my way back to some very dear friends, uh, Kat and Ben, uh, Kat Leonard and Ben Foreman, who run Wrestler, Wrestler Studio, yeah, yeah. and they kind of like cat cuddled me up and 
Ben fed me some, uh, you know, some prescription opiates, and I sort of like went off to yeah. sleep in cat's arms. But yeah, that was a very harrowing e- ego death experience. Yeah, ego death. Full, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But very reluctant ego death. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was yeah, super harrowing experience, and and I'd say took a big, took a lot from me, but also gave me a lot. You know, mm. like like in the in the days after I came right. Um, we burned the man the next night and that was an incredible kind of culmination and celebration of, of that whole week of everyone. You know, was, that, people... was that a personal thing that you saw when the man was burning that you were releasing all that stuff that you'd been through the 24 hours previous? Absolutely. Yeah, and, that, and that's the whole, that's the way it's all designed, right? Mm. So you they burn the man. Um, one really crazy thing this year was, or last year was, you know, they'd figured out there were these people who had, who had swarms of drones with light, and they were doing light shows with the drones. Oh, wow. So you'd get like three or 400 drones, all uh, programmed using software, and these things would emerge in the sky and create this these artworks. Like, you know, you'd see like a great white shark chasing a seal through the sky, <laughs> and, it, you know, it would catch the seal, and then the seal would, you know, explode into a million different pieces and so the yeah they, they had the drones out that night when the man burned and after he fell to the ground, it, these 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 drones like dots of light slowly resurrected him. Um, oh wow! And he he came back to life and then started started kind of walking back towards us and he's like eighty meters, hundred meters high. Um, and then yeah, so after that, everyone you know you've got like twenty thousand naked people running around the fire yeah. that's that's the custom that's yeah. the ritual so we all you know you all do that and it, it is a it's a very primal sense of release of of you know i think of of whatever you've been under or experiencing in that week but but also just generally like yeah. it's like a wipe the slate slate clean from your life cleanse your brain and uh yeah very very powerful kind of sense of ritual you feel like you're part of this the human species along with like 79,999 other yeah. human species and you're doing this important thing together with you know out in the outdoors with the fire and the desert it's very kind of yeah sort of carnal and yeah. um yeah it's what powerful. a human should be doing right yeah, yeah i think i think yeah. at one level like what yeah. we've done for hundreds of thousands of years what we've done for tens of thousands of years yeah man Hey, so I talk I talk about Burning Man forever because I'm fascinated because I want to go. But yeah, um, you'd you'd have a blast there, man. Yeah, man. It would be yeah, you'd be a it'd yeah. be great. I, I think it's it's not necessarily for everyone because it's it's a very it's a tough environment. Yeah, uh, you have to enjoy a little bit of that discomfort and difficulty. Yeah, um, and it's like physically challenging and. You can, you know, you can get injured and hurt yourself out there if you don't take care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think well, that's life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, do you, when do you think you'll go? Oh, I don't know, man. Next year, I yeah. think, yeah. I yeah. think you're going to go back? Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll be right. going back. Let's yeah. plan it. Let's plan it. Yeah. I want to go back with Tony oh, and maybe even Cohen as well. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I'd, yeah. Love, I'd love to take my kids to a crazy festival and just have them, you know, really cool experience. Mm. Hey, so I want to spend the next 10 minutes talking about um, your latest thing though, right, man, because this is something that, you know, I'm personally pretty passionate about, you know, like I think I think it's great. We, we, we bought your product straight away. We're like, yep, we're in on this. And so what is it and tell us about it and, and what is it doing? 
So Carbon Invoice is, the, is my latest venture, and we've designed the easiest way for services firms to take climate action. What we mean by easiest is there's no change to their process, um, they don't have to do anything new, there's almost no effort on them. It takes them about five minutes. How long did it take you to sign up? Five minutes, yeah. yeah literally, sub, sub yeah. five minutes. Yeah. Like, takes five minutes to for them to connect their accounting data up. We audit. We, we automatically measure Talent Army's uh, carbon footprint, and then we give our customers, like Talent Army, the ability to click a button and start funding the planting of New Zealand native trees to help mitigate and reduce your carbon impact. Yeah. So that's all cool. And then the real the real essence of the value prop is that we give you the ability to tell the story of the positive impact you guys are having to your network, to the world, to your prospects, to your clients, to your shareholders. And I think that's the the really novel part of this proposition. Yeah. You know, to like less than a percent of 1% of businesses in New Zealand have measured or taken any action on their carbon footprint. So you guys are leaders. Yep. You know, you're in the 1% as talent o- 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 Always, mate. Always, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Usually as for the wrong reasons. But <laughs> <laughs> as, it, as it should be. Yeah. Um, and when I left Ross McVay a decade ago, it, that was, you know, that figure was a, a bit lower. Like it was probably 0.1 or 0.2%. Mm. But it has gone almost, it, it's, it's increasing very, very slowly. And we, I think our belief is that the reason for that is that no one has created something that is motivating for small businesses to use and, and where they get a tangible commercial reward and benefit from, yeah. from taking action, which they should. Yeah. You know, if we're going to play the game of capitalism, if that is our, the, the, the water that we're swimming in, then for you at Talonami, you need to get paid and get benefit from taking yeah. climate action that's a core belief oh yeah so and as, as a services yeah. company right to to take that stance and then show customers our cl- customers the money that you're giving us this is what we're doing with mm. on the very invoices that we send out to them thanking them for their business you know is fucking fantastic yeah exactly so yeah i think we've 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 distilled it down to something quite simple and I think logical to you know an, an ever-growing number of customers. Mm. So from yeah, for me, it's uh, a big fan of Naval Ravikant. He has this uh, term around specific knowledge, mm-hmm. and I never really knew what it meant. But I've been thinking about it lately. I, I intellectually knew what it meant. He's like specific knowledge is when you pile, you know, you stack knowledge upon top of knowledge from different areas and then that enables you to get insight or or you know additional new knowledge that other people don't have yeah and i would say if there's a the version of that for carbon invoices i have been a lawyer you know i've worked in services businesses so i understand how that goes i've been a climate advocate and organizer through helping start generation zero so i know a lot about um, climate. I've tried a lot of different ways of changing people's behaviour and educating them, and then I've you know built a successful fintech business um, using data and which is specifically relevant to small businesses. So stacking those things on top of each other has enabled 
me and and the team to see the opportunity for carbon invoice. Mm. And I think that's like our form of specific knowledge. If I hadn't done one of those things, I don't think I would have been able to see the opportunity as clearly. Man, it's it's funny how like serendipity, right? Like in terms of specific, like you, you go down these paths and you don't realize that the knowledge you're learning down that path mm. is something that's going to be super useful to you in seven years' time. And you're in the thick of it and you're like, how the fuck am I going to get through what I'm doing right now? But you just don't realize the power and impact that that specific knowledge may have to you like seven years' time. And I would love to be able to look back on my life and see, you know, a network of influence and change that I've been able to move forward because of the knowledge that I had of this thing over here that I didn't have any idea about at the time why I was doing it or how I was doing it. And so, yeah, interesting, man, that you... I brought all the facets of Carlos together into this, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, this is it. I feel like I've been training for this my whole life. Yeah. And when I said to Craig Shrive, partner at Russell McVay, I'm going to leave and start a business that reduces carbon emissions, it's taken me a decade. But, and I've had lots of different, you know, different yeah. uh, windy journeys, but I'm there now and I'm like ready to go. And I think we're, we're going to build something absolutely enormous to help the world's small businesses, services firms initially, take take climate action. You know, there's there's a billion of them, 600,000 sole traders, and then 400 million, uh, 400,000 small medium enterprises. They they are the heroes of of the business world, and as far as I'm concerned, and almost none of them, you know, that one percent have taken climate action, but they they you know they add up to about 35. 35, 40% of carbon emissions worldwide. So yeah. they've got a real role to play. And if we can mobilise, you know, help leaders like Telenami take action and then help, you know, the rest of the businesses in your orbit take action, I think we can build a snowball, a movement ultimately. Yeah. But for me, it's a um, non-event for a services business, right? Like you, if, you, if they're not using it, you know, Let's say no brainer. Yeah, exactly. Right. I was yeah. about to use a real profu- uh, like obtuse term there, but f- like so because I mean, like, largely you think about climate emissions and you think about the social impact that you know or you think about the the corporation pressure and guilt of what I can do as a business, and largely for small to medium businesses, it's mostly like oh, I really want to do something, but I can't afford it, right? Mm-hmm. And this for me is like a really simple way just to say you know it's it's a percentage you won't even know about it. You know, it'll just tick along and then you'll start to see the amount of trees and the the, the the feedback from the clients for me, you know, that is fantastic. And so Yeah, you've had good feedback, have yeah, you? Yeah, man. Yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. It's um and, and to be honest, we never even thought it, you know, and I, ne- I never even think about it, but you get feedback because it's just like people like you know, capitalist recruitment business, you know, doing something good, I like it. You know, like recruiters are mostly evil and the fact that we're trying to um, you know, help in any way we can is great. Yeah, yeah, and I love that, you know, it's very tangible, right? Like you guys are funding trees and we're getting them planted in the ground, New Zealand native trees that would not have been planted without, you know, you nominating those dollars. Yeah. So it's it's very tangible, real-world action, which I think is great. And this for me, because the climate climate impact, right, is the – it's such a huge, big thing that a lot, a lot of us can't get head around. Mm. We have a lot of climate deniers. Yeah, a lot of people saying, "Well, I can't do anything different in my world to, you know, help the environment." 
And this is something that you can do really easily by planting trees, right? Like by thinking about your emissions. And I, th- I think it's such a good gateway drug into people, you know, really probably going to Burning Man next year. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> on a solar powered jet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know, yeah, so I'm, I'm really passionate about it, man. Like I've obviously, you know, we've seen it and we've, we've pushed it out. We, we bought the product and um, have been yelling it out on the socials. And I thank you because you're getting behind the recruitment meetups as well, man, which, yeah. is, which is awesome. So thank you. I think all recruiters should be on it. I don't think many recruiters listen to this, sorry. But <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's spot on. I mean, I'll tell one story. We had a... Uh, a um, can no recruitment, yeah, government focused recruitment uh, leader sign up yesterday, and I think his story was just articulates the problem so well. He had been asked by the all of government panel, uh, who are his primary clients, I think eighty or ninety yeah. percent of his revenue. I won't name who he is, but um, he'd been asked by by them, you know, what are you doing about your carbon footprint? Are you measuring it? Are you reducing it? This guy runs a, I think they're a six-person shop or so. Yeah. So they that revenue is absolutely critical to their business. Without without the all of government panel, they're you know they're yeah. a tenth of what they are, revenue-wise. And this hero, like he'd, he he, I think he he was really empathetic to the problem. His, his view was, well, we all we all contribute to this, so we've all got to do our bit. Yeah, I'm a services business I'm, a, I'm not an oil company but i have a carbon footprint i use electricity yeah. i travel around and you know use transport i, I use uh, computer etc and so he but he was an older guy and he had he was doing this sort of hero's effort to try and manually measure was his really? carbon footprint so he'd gone to his landlord and asked the landlord for like a breakdown of all the electricity data oh wow um he was quite, you know, quite frustrated, and his th- his his thing was like, "Why is this so difficult? Yeah. And why am I being asked to do it? Like, I'm a I'm a recruiter, um, I'm not a climate consultant." Yeah. Um, and so we we showed him the product, signed him up, and you know, sub five minutes, and he was mind blown. He yeah. was like, "Oh, okay, this exists." You know, not a particular. I don't think he knew a lot about software apps and yeah. how they work, but. That to me was is the perfect articulation, as well as like people like Telenami. But he wants to do the right thing. It's critical to his business, and at some point to do the right thing. Like there's a point where the all of government panel is it's a mandatory requirement to be measuring yeah. and reducing your carbon footprint. We're, we're not quite there, and he just wanted the easy way to do it. So, yeah, I mean that's who we're building carbon invoice for, and I think that's. Seventy-five percent of the market. Yeah, yeah. Exciting times ahead. I think with Carbon Invoice Man, are you um, you looking to raise money? Is there anything that you're needing, wanting from the business right now? I mean, if you're a services firm, come and get it. Come and let us help you. If you're a services firm that wants to take climate action and has a spare four minutes and twenty seconds, come and come and sign up. so www.carboninvoice.com. Um, yeah, we'll be capital we'll be capital raising in twenty three for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, watch the space on that front. And then if you're you know if if you're passionate about building a you know a global climate fintech product from from Little Old Wellington, then uh, and you got particularly product customer success, obviously developers always. Um, skill set, 
Um, if you know a lot about product-led growth, we would love to hear from you. If you've been in a product-led growth company and sort of figured out how to get PLG working, then uh, that's definitely a big focus of ours. And you want to be with a team that's been banded together on, on a mission for years now, you know. That... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the culture kind of speaks for itself, if that's the metric, yeah. you know, longevity and stickability. Awesome, man. Hey, that makes me happy, man. So that's a really good segue into my final question to you, buddy, is what makes you happy now? Ooh, great question. Uh, so I am, I mean, the main thing that makes me happy most often is my young son, Cohen, mm. Cohen Ocean. Cohen Ocean Moyes Chambers. He is just turned two years old and he's just a gorgeous delight to be around. So you're getting the gushy sort of new father thing. You feel um, like it's it's only at two or, you know, when the feed, the communication loop increases that you feel like you can actually be a proper father, you know, yeah, like. Yeah, mm, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so he's starting to get opinions and he's starting to, you know, uh, yeah, have a lot of vocabulary, and it's just fun. It's so much fun, you know. Yeah. That's my reflection. Is that your, your reflection as a dad? Oh yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. like it, it's super, super fun, man. Yeah. Like um, I, I look back on those early years, man, and like there was a, so there's a period like up until their first birthday, you feel a little bit helpless as a father, and like I felt that same thing too. So I felt I lost myself because. I wasn't needed as needed by my partner anymore because the, my partner had my little daughter and my daughter didn't need me. I felt like a year of just working my ass off to try and support the family and so I felt like I didn't know who I was as a person at the end of that first sort of 12 to 18 months. And then, so I remember having the same sort of epiphany. Like I just needed I, to go to bed. Yeah, yeah, I wish I did. I wish I did. Um, but then I started getting that feedback from my daughter who started talking to me and telling me things and would come home and tell me, like, you know, I'd come home and she would run to me and tell me something from the day and you're just like, I just melt in a second, you know, and I'm just like, Eric, this is worth it because of this, you know. And I never thought that I would, this is probably a horrible statement, I, didn't, I never thought that I would necessarily enjoy being a father as much as yeah. I did, you know. Like for me it was, eh, I don't know. But then afterwards I was like, yeah, I get it. You're like, you want to see a photo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm that guy now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me too. Awesome. Um, other than that, you know, in, in terms of other stuff, I'm, so I'm a very physical person. I love being in the outdoors. You know, this kind of weather we've got, like howling southerlies, probably going to go for a surf after this and chase some of the big lumps of water on the south coast. Um, so that gives me a lot, of, a lot of happiness. I love getting out into the into the bush got a mission in the richmond ranges for four days we'll be kind of you know running walk running 10 hours a day and seeing that part of the country um and then yeah feeding the brain right like reading yep. good books um is ever you know an ever increasing passion um uncovering new ideas i i love anything that kind of tests you or push you know pushes your body yeah. um or your mind you know been been right into fasting for the last seven or eight years and been going further and further with that um what so, do you yeah. mean further and further like longer and longer without food um, yeah yeah got it up to seven days now so we'll yeah planning on pushing up to 10 i did 28 um, days did you do 28 days no food yeah wow yeah yeah that so, is epic i didn't know that yeah yeah i um it was when I got divorced and I realised, yeah. oh, fuck, I'm really w w overweight here. And then I saw some 
young gamer, YouTuber, you know, English guy that did a 28-day fast and lost all this weight. And I was right. like, oh, I'm going to try that. Um, yeah, I did 28. Yeah, you did it. I yeah, always loved yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I fucking <laughs> right. fasted for 28 days. Like, I did it I did it the best way I could. Yeah. Um, but, man, it was fucking um, – it was more of a mental challenge than it was a physical challenge, if I'm honest. Yeah. So how was, like, days 8 to 25? I think you would, I you would find the yeah. same – feeling over seven days as you would over 20 and i don't right. recommend people to go off and do a 28 day fast uh, water fast yeah. you know that is yeah. um is that day one w- water and, fast being a fast where you drink water but you don't yeah, and t- t- yeah. take any calories rather than 28 days without water yeah when, when exactly dead. yeah yeah that was what i did um yeah. so day one you're like ah uh, you know like hungry you know just because of normality and routine and the likes yeah yeah day two you're like oh fuck i'm agitated a little bit and and hungry day three i don't know day three you're in ketosis yeah so day three you don't even think about it right but then you start thinking about it again by day six right Mm -hmm. and so day by day six and seven you're hungry again because you're like thinking about the food that i'm going to stop my fast soon Mm -hmm. so for me i didn't really even think about it until day 25 you know like Mm -hmm. um and you just had that metric because you'd read about the gamer 100 so you're like yeah. 25 days is the right number yeah, of yeah, days yeah and so that was that was just all i was going to do and it, the weight just kept falling off me man but and i did yeah. that with like how slow, much did you lose 32 kilos wow. <laughs> yeah 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 right so it's like yeah point point nine of a kilo a day yeah um and i so I, every now and then i'll still do a quick fast if i feel like um you know i want to lose a bit of weight or feel good about myself, you know, because I actually enjoyed the fasting process for me. Yeah. Like it was releases endorphins in your brains. It's good for your body. You know, yeah. it's, it's eating the, you know, the fatty shit and the potentially fighting for like cancers and the likes. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. fascinating, man. But um, totally. probably wouldn't do 28 days again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, that was, um, I try, I do it now and I'm thinking, how the fuck do I even do it? But divorce is a good way to push yourself to, yeah. <laughs> to other places, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for you, man. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. Cheers, brother. Hey, well, um, I'm really excited about uh, Common Ledger and Carbon Invoice and, and seeing what the future ahead is. And let's talk about it at Burning Man next year and, and look back. Can't wait, man. Yeah, thank you for your support. You've been a, yeah, a huge supporter. Appreciate uh, it. My pleasure, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Cheers. So that's, for me, uh, a true representation of manifesting what you really want in life. And so Carlos talks about his journey as a lawyer who found himself in a bit of a predicament where he wasn't, his values and what the work that he was doing weren't 100% lining. And so he knew he wanted to do something environmental. He knew he wanted to found a company. And we actually get to hear about his journey and then how 10 years later he's come full circle to actually complete that manifest- manifestation about what he wanted to do with his life and how he wanted to do it. And I don't know about you, but I just, I just felt excited listening to him because when you hear someone's story about something that they desperately want to do in their life and then they finally go out and find all the pit, like navigate all the pitfalls to get there and start doing it, you just believe it 100%. And I 100% believed Carlos. And I'm really excited to see what happens with Carbon Invoice and Common Ledger in the future. And I'm probably going to get a Burning Man, like I said. So, yeah, Jono, start packing up your cameras and figuring out how to not get sanded.
Until next time, thank you for everyone that's listening. Thank you for everyone that's subscribing. Our subscriber numbers are booming up, but there's a specific goal that I'm looking to hit. So please come on, jump on and subscribe on Spotify, subscribe on any platform that you're listening to. It's going to really help us to continue to building this, this podcast and making it great for everyone. Thank you. This podcast is produced by John Otaka from Empire Films.